Hi, I'm Katie Allen. I'm a paediatrician turned politician, and I'm constantly asked why change from one of the world's most trusted professions to one of the least. The answer is simple. I want to get inside the tent to help make our future better. Along the way, I've met fascinating people and learned a lot about how the world works. I want to share some of that experience with you, and through my podcast, you'll meet some really interesting people who are helping solve the problems of the world. Reach out to me on socials to let me know who you want to hear from. Join me, Dr. Katie Allen, on An Apple A Week. Hopefully, you'll learn as much as I do. So fantastic to see you, Jeremy. Thank you so much for joining me on my podcast. We have with nice us to see today. you too, Katie. Pleasure to be here. <laughs> fantastic. Um, so Jeremy Hunt, uh, as um, everyone knows, is uh, the UK's longest serving health minister. And Jeremy, you're now chairing the health committee and you've written a book called Zero, which I have absolutely loved. I'm a great fan of it. Um, and the reason I love it is that it you know, brings together three really interesting elements. There's the people power, the power of the people's voice, and um, you bring that to life very much woven throughout every chapter of the book. You have great data and stats, which is for someone like me, who's a health professional, loves to know what the actual data is. Um, and then you provide these amazing political insights, really um, a voice from inside the tent, giving us a glimpse into what it's like being in the hot seat for the health secretary and the decisions that you've had to face and how you've dealt with them and your decision-making around them. So I think for anyone in the healthcare system who's interested in health, it's a book to read. And I've recommended it to my daughters who are both studying medicine and they've lapped it up as well. So I think, you know, right from health ministers to political types to those who are in the healthcare system, I think this is a really interesting book. So I'm going to start my first question by asking, you know, you, you, you started writing the book as Health Secretary in 2015, um, and now you've just released it in the last few months. But, but why on earth did you write the book? Well, I think I needed therapy, really, having been a Health Secretary for six years. Um, I think uh, I used to meet colleagues from other countries uh, who were responsible for their own health systems, and they always had sympathy for the UK Health Secretary, because um, unlike pretty much any other country, as health secretary here, you're not just responsible for making sure that everyone has access to good health care and public health and preparation for pandemics and all those kinds of things. You actually run the systems. The hospitals actually effectively report to you. So everything that goes wrong in any hospital up and down the country uh, in a parliamentary system, that lands at the door of the health secretary. So it's a pretty stressful job. Most people say it's the hardest job in the cabinet. Um, it figures at the centre of every general election campaign. Um, and uh, so I found myself walking into that job and finding it was a total firestorm from day one. It never stopped. And at the end of six years, I was, I was pretty exhausted. I was pretty relieved to go on to another cabinet job because most health secretaries it ends up being their last job um, and uh, I used the pandemic which obviously I wasn't predicting or expecting to ask myself what did I really learn and what would I have done differently and what did I wish I'd known at the start of my time that I, I came to understand and the book zero came out and um, what I found in writing that book was that the biggest single thing that I wanted to challenge 
was this sense that I think happens in health systems all over the world that some element of avoidable preventable death is just inevitable there's nothing you can do about it and I found this very much entrenched in the thinking in the NHS um, and I discovered it's actually not different in other countries either. Mm, fascinating and that's what I really love about the book you know clearly you have a love for the sector you know the NHS is 1.4 million employees you know you have great interaction with some hugely um, influential healthcare leaders um, and, and you tell their story as well but at the end of the day you know as a politician you know your your shareholder is is the people the people who put you there and the people who fund the system um, and you famously and, and said this in the book that you rang a patient each day, which is quite a remarkable thing to do. And, I, you know, I'm just a humble backbencher and, and had hundreds of emails and I used to do something similar. But to be health secretary running, you know, multi, you know, tens of billions of dollars budget, but then getting down to the individual patient each day, it's really quite extraordinary. So I'd love to ask, I mean, you do talk about lots of cases in, in the book, but which case, you know, do you think touched you the most? Do you think really got well, to you and under your skin? Yeah, yeah. Um... I don't know if I could really say that there was any case that that touched me the most, but um, first of all, this was really um, born of ignorance. So I arrived in that job not knowing anything about health policy. I'd done campaigning for health services in my own constituency, but I didn't really understand anything about how the NHS worked or, or was run. And I was looking for a way to find something that I could make my main focus and I thought well in a system that's really you know got lots of experts and doctors as an elected politician my job is to be the voice of patients so I started paying attention to what some of the patients who felt they were wrong by the system were saying and I remember that the the first couple I met were a couple from Devon who had lost their three-year-old son Sam to sepsis and he died in in the hospital in Torbay and they have been told by the hospital it was one of those things couldn't have been stopped it just sadly sometimes happens and they grieved for six months and then as they were doing their grieving they suddenly thought there were one or two anomalies in Sam's care and so they asked the hospital for a meeting and they were turned down hospital said I'm really sorry we, we don't have time for a meeting and then they um, found more anomalies and they said that the NHS was like a brick wall it was like the shutters came down no one wanted to talk to them and you know subsequently I, I thought about this a lot more and I realized that it wasn't that the professionals involved were uncaring it's just they were busy with the next patients they, they, they really had their work cut out and they were focusing on, on the patients that were alive. And they were all very sad about the fact that Sam had died. And I think in their hearts, they knew, and in fact, subsequent investigations showed there were some huge failures in Sam's care that could have meant that Sam didn't die. But they needed to focus on the patients who were alive and who were in front of them. And so we ended up with this system that the NHS is, was set up to be the most compassionate healthcare system in the world. Doesn't matter who you are, rich or poor, young or old, you should be able to access the care you need. And in different ways, countries, including Australia, have all taken on board elements of that, although they haven't copied it in its entirety. Um, 
And yet it was incredibly uncompassionate, incredibly hard-hearted, harsh, not even being prepared to talk to two grieving parents. And I thought, something doesn't feel right. And that was really the meeting that started me on my journey. Mm. I think in your book, you really um, articulate very well that, you know, this issue of the healthcare system being both personal and impersonal, and the fact that there are efficiencies that a healthcare system has to have. Um, And your argument about safety can actually be cost effective, I think is a very cogent argument. But actually, you you argue very well that, um, particularly in the UK with regards to litigation, um, you know, of course, you should be caring for compassionate reasons. And of course, the healthcare system should be caring for compassionate reasons. And I as a doctor myself, I don't know any doctor who isn't compassionate about their patients and cares about their patients. And so it's the falling between the gaps or that the system is you know, looking at targets or is looking at efficiencies. And I think you argue very, very well this concept that um, if, you, if you can prevent um, mistakes from happening, you actually save a lot of money. And you, and you do that not just because uh, it makes sense from an efficiency of a healthcare point of view, but but also at the litigation sort of level. So I'd actually just like to explore that because, um, uh, you know, I think this issue of litigation is very is a big variation across different countries. And um, in your book, you talk about the different types of um, legal systems. So Australia, Canada, and England have the tort law system, um, while New Zealand, you know, has no fault compensation. Um, and um, I think the Swedish company, uh, Norwegian company, sorry, the Scandinavian companies had avoidable harm compensation schemes. But interestingly, um, it's always difficult to compare apples with apples or apples with oranges, sorry. And um, looking at your data, the claims in England, I think that there's 19 claims per 100,000. In Australia, there's 26 claims per 100,000, and they're both under a tort law system. But the cost per capita in England is 42 pounds per person, while it's six pounds per person in Australia. Um, And as a proportion of GDP, the UK 0.1%, Australia 0.02%. So quite significant differences on the impact um, with regards to cost uh, to the healthcare system. And then if you look at the um, New Zealand system, which is a no-fault no compensation scheme, where you know instead of having doctors contesting with patients or against patients, um, you have a system where it's just like, well, if something's gone wrong and it was avoidable, then basically there's going to be compensation. But that's hugely expensive with uh, New Zealand's percent of GDP, GDP being 1%, which, um, you know, if you had 1% of GDP in litigation in Australia or, or the UK, I think, you know, the system would go broke. So how do, you, how do you round that or square that circle, I should say, with regards to making a healthcare system, uh, you know, affordable and compassionate and then dealing with this issue of litigation, which is changing um, around the world with regards to patients being empowered to make those decisions to to sue. Well, my starting point on this is that we would all save a bunch of money if we were better at learning from mistakes and not repeating the things that go wrong. And I think the most shocking example of this is actually uh, neonatal deaths or, you know, what us laymen call baby deaths, um, where, you know, when a, a baby dies in a hospital, that is like the most horrific shocking thing that can happen both for the family and also for the medical staff Um, and you would think when that happens that the most important priority for everyone is to find out exactly why it happened 
work out whether it could have been prevented, put in place systems to stop that mistake happening again, and make sure all the hospitals in, in the area uh, and in the country, for that matter, learn those mistakes. And in the UK's case, that is exactly what does not happen. Um, so the family will only get, if, if a child is born disabled, uh, severely disabled with cerebral palsy, they will only get compensation if uh, a court agrees that there's been clinical negligence, either by a doctor or a midwife or a nurse or a hospital. And so because they are very worried about the cost of bringing up a disabled child, which wasn't their plan, um, their life's been turned upside down. Um, the lawyer advises them that you, you know, you can get several million pounds if you can prove clinical negligence. And so they start on that journey, which can take five to eight years. The medical staff naturally get very defensive because the last thing they want is, is you know, clinical negligence to be on their CVs. And they well, well on top of that, with things like cerebral palsy, you know, the association of, you know, causation for cerebral palsy, you know, the etiology is not necessarily well described. No. And so they then clutch at every single straw they can find to try and show that it, it wasn't a clinical error. And the result is you have, a, you have a very, very defensive response from the medical teams, an aggressive uh, approach from the legal teams and enormous distress for everyone actually but particularly for the parents because they don't get that compensation for five years so the first five years of the child's life while the thing is going through the legal process uh, which is actually when they need the support the most they don't get it um, and it's inc incredibly stressful but the one thing that doesn't happen in that situation is everyone calmly sitting around and saying well look did I make a mistake here could I have done that differently? And so a lot of money gets spent on lawyers about, so we spend more in the UK, we spend more money on compensation for maternity errors than the entire annual cost of every obstetrician or maternity nurse in the country. Uh, we, every year we're spending more compensating people for failure than all those salaries, um, which is, really obscene and by the way a third of that cost goes to lawyers doesn't it's not compensation to families so um you know i think that has got to be incredibly wasteful and i looked around the world at different systems and i think the best systems are in sweden and new zealand sweden has a um a system where if you can prove that there was a mistake um then compensation is automatic and you don't have to go through a court system at uh, prescribed rates. New Zealand goes the whole way and just automatically provides compensation for anyone who's been harmed. Interestingly, I was told when I was health secretary that would be way too expensive, what you just said to me, way too expensive for the UK. Um, but when I looked into this again as health select committee, the Department of Health came back with figures that show that the New Zealand system costs about 1% of their entire healthcare costs. And in the UK, it's 2%. So the U New Zealand system, I don't actually know about the Australian system, but the New Zealand system is cheaper than the UK system. And certainly in the case of Sweden, if we had the same maternity safety rates as Sweden, a thousand more babies would live every year. So that would be an incredible 
reduction in the heartache caused to many, many families and indeed medical staff as well. So to me, the real issue is creating a system where people can learn from mistakes and you don't create an adversarial system right from the outset. I think there are tort law systems where they've been able to reduce the cost. Um, Scotland is has much lower cost than England. Um, but I think that Scotland is about to find its costs mushroom and become like the English cost because they've just introduced no fault compensation. They've just introduced, uh, not no fault compensation, they've just introduced, um, uh, what do you call it? Not payment by results. Um, uh, <coughs> a system where uh, no, uh, no success, no outcome. Outcome no, 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 yeah, outcome-based legal costs. So you can go to lawyers and uh, success not pay them the, anything. Yeah. yeah, until we have success, like in the UK. Oh, sorry, um, in the US. In the US. Um, so they've just introduced that in Scotland, and I think they're going to find the, the cost mushroom. So um, my priority is really learning. And I think that uh, in the UK, we definitely get it wrong. In the US, they definitely get it wrong, although there are some states in the US uh, that have now uh, changed that. Um, to try and do this. I think the most inspiring example actually is Japan. Uh, Japan introduced no-fault compensation for the most severe forms of cerebral palsy in 2009. And so if you get this, uh, if you get these very severe cases of cerebral palsy, the family automatically gets compensation. There's no legal case. And since they introduced that in 2009, the number of those cases has fallen by a third. So that is a massive reduction yes. in cost to the system and heartache for families. Yes. And so, and, and what they do in Japan is every year they have a full independent review of every single CP case to say, what can we learn from this? Mm. What could we do differently? Mm. And that seems to me to be, um, the model that we should th be thinking about when it comes to, to litigation and harm. Mm. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, people talk about um, safety and the tip of the iceberg. So, you know, uh, obviously, if, if you have a, a preventable death, then that means that there's been a lot of missed um, events that have occurred underneath that. They call it the Swiss cheese model mm. where, you know, things have to happen quite often uh, in order to have something like that might be an avoidable um, event, you know, I'm, I've been a food allergy doctor, and you know, so the cases of anaphylaxis of, you know, a child dying from cow's milk allergy in a hospital because he was given cow's milk rather than soy milk, um, you know, those sorts of. When you go back and look at the system, there's there's a Swiss cheese event where you know any of those events could have been a problem, but they were, you know, they cumulative cumulative problems that result in these absolutely extraordinary outcomes. So we're talking with litigation about the, the tip of the iceberg, but it does underpin you know that sort of continuous learning from mistakes and being on the board of a hospital I know that we were monitoring um, preventable um, events such as falls and nosocomial infections or infections that people were doing from poor hand washing and I think around the world we're seeing you know a great um, improvement in these areas but uh, they're hard to shift particularly when you've got yeah. these large organizations and I love the fact that even when you left um, being health secretary when you became foreign secretary that health was still under your skin and, and as you said in your book that you you know helped to launch world patient safety day as a thing which i think is september the 17th and they're now 89 countries championing it um, and and those sorts of things sort of raise awareness about how important health safety is 
but you also talk about how do we build a system hungry to make changes automatically or improvements automatically in the mm -hmm. ethics of continual learning. And I know as doctors, we have continuing medical education and we're asked to review, you know, how we do things, but then how does the system um, also continue um, to have a continual learning environment and, and that can be more difficult because of course every system is made up of small groups and when you bring uh, those groups together it, it, you know it's that sort of hierarchical um, structural system so so you know your view about how do you how do you keep people nimble and learning um, you talk about no blame approach um, deconstructing hierarchy what would be the three things that you know if you could wave a magic wand that would help the culture in an NHS system? Well, I think, um, let me give you two. I mean, first of all, the Swiss cheese model, which is often talked about in patient safety circles, is really fascinating. So there's this idea that, you know, the worst type of tragedy only happens when all the holes in a piece of Swiss cheese line up. And, um, and so it's a very, and that suggests it's an unusual thing, but unfortunately it's not that unusual. We have five preventable deaths across the world every single minute. Um, but what that model also suggests is that uh, system changes, structural changes, routine changes, procedure changes could stop that Swiss cheese aligning of the holes happening. And I think that's a very important insight because uh, in the vast majority of cases, um, the error happened not because of a, a severe professional failing by a doctor or a nurse or a midwife, but because of the kind of ordinary human mistake that all of us make in our work. And if you think about your life as a politician compared to your life as a doctor, and when you're a politician, you could have a bad day, a speech goes down wrong, or you lose an election. Well, um, quite frankly, you use one wrong word. <laughs> or you use one wrong word. But what happens is, you know, you make a fool of yourself, you feel lousy. When you were a doctor, if you made some of those mistakes, there's a you chance someone, someone could die. Yeah, exactly. No. And so um, it's fundamentally a very brave thing, I think, to be a doctor. But um, no doctor wants to be responsible for those mistakes. And the vast majority of patient safety errors, you can change the structures and systems so that it, it's impossible for anyone to make that mistake again. And that's the constructive way of looking mm. at something that goes wrong, not to say you're a bad doctor, you're a bad mm. nurse, you shouldn't practice as a midwife again, but to say, how could we change the system so that mm. the next midwife in a different hospital, in a different city, doesn't make the same mistake? Mm. Um, but how do we change it? What's the, the biggest thing I learned is that, um, and I think even though Australia and the UK have very different health systems, I think you'll be very familiar with this, Katie. Um, when you discover that, you know, using a certain type of tube uh, for someone who's uh, had their bowel removed is going to save lives. The, the instinct is to say, right, let's mandate this now across our whole health system um, in a kind of very Stalinist way. And that way we're going to save, you know, 220 lives a year or whatever the, the stats suggest. And of course, there is a role for system-wide changes that improve safety. And I was responsible for many of them when I was, was health secretary. But the thing about that is that you solve the individual problem, uh, but you don't 
necessarily create a culture where everyone is looking out for ways that they themselves can improve their own practice when they go into work at nine o'clock on a Monday morning. And I learnt over my six long years as health secretary that there's really two types of leadership. There's leadership where you change practice, and that's what most of us tend to focus on, particularly conservatives, because we're kind of practical people. Um, a lot of us come from a business background. And so you think if I can, you know, if I can reduce um, the neonatal death rate uh, by 12%, as I did when I was health secretary, that's a victory. And you're proud yeah. of that. And it's very important. That is, but there's another type of leadership, which is changing people's minds. Yeah. And that is a culture change. And that's a change. And it comes from the top. It comes, it, comes, from the top. it comes from the top, yeah. but it can't be imposed from the top. You no. can only change people's minds because they, they want to. We have to change and their hearts. You have to change their hearts. That's a very good way of putting it, actually. Very good way of putting it. And so to change their hearts, uh, they have to want to do it. And uh, you then you create a culture which is a learning culture. And that's what I feel in the NHS in England, certainly, we need much, much more. We need to become a learning organisation so that... Uh, in, if we're going to improve the care that patients get, you're not just waiting for the next instruction that comes from the health secretary or the head of NHS England or the head of your hospital. Um, people are actually actively looking themselves uh, and going on a journey of continuous improvement. And that intellectual curiosity as to how we can make healthcare safer, um, more effective with better outcomes, that's what we need to think about how we can give everyone the space to do. And I think that um, that does happen, as you know, in, you know, in, in the good leadership that you see. And, and I know the NHS sent a number of, um, I think, 50 healthcare leaders across to Harvard Business School to help develop their leadership skills and, and sort of upskilling that, you know, ability to lead in that way, I think is incredibly important. And there's a lot, there's a big movement about a value-based healthcare system around the world. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's hard to do, easy to dream about and aspire for too, but hard to do, particularly in constraints mm. of busy practice um, and, and targets and, and people trying to do the right thing all of the time. So in our last few minutes, because I can honestly could talk to you for hours, um, I'd just like to turn to the future of healthcare. And, and obviously health safety, you know, is, in, is incredibly important and putting that at the heart of what we do. But with an ageing population and a narrowing tax base, um, uh, you know, with digital transformation coming at speed and particularly the genomics revolution. Um, you know, we know there's a health, a health, a workforce planning shortage also coming at speed. I think the WHO says 18 million globally short, a global shortage by 2030. Um, we know that there's been difficulties with COVID, that there's a, a lot of catch up with regards to delayed healthcare. Um, we also know that countries like Australia and the UK depend on um, importing doctors from overseas. I think in the UK, 28% of doctors are non-British nationalists, so there's some short-term pressures that both Australia and the UK are facing. Um, but, you know, the transformations that are coming at us and the opportunity for health uh, to be on the front foot, um, not the back foot, you know, with things like telehealth, digitalisation and, and, you know, genomic screening or genomic um, testing. Um, what's your view on, on how you know, healthcare systems are going to embrace these changes and, and do so in a way that's both ethical, um, you know, supports privacy of individuals, um, and, and in, in the political confines of you know, election cycles as well? 
Well, I think it's actually a very exciting time. And um, I think the, the whole prevention agenda, which um, is talked about much more in health circles than in political circles, is going to become a lot more central because it's obviously cheaper to catch a cancer at stage one or two than stage three or four. And you've obviously read my first speech, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I absorbed it by osmosis. <laughs> um, and um, so, but I think prevention agenda, which is not the focus. I mean, in Australia, like in, uh, in England, you have a payment by results system or fee-for-service system, which incentivizes incentivizes hospitals to do as much activity as possible mm -hmm. and um that really was well, actually activity based not even results based which isn't quite right the same. yes indeed and so that puts the whole emphasis of the health system on uh on cure rather than prevention and we're all trying to figure out ways to to move the care upstream so that we can catch well, diseases. Well, I mean, I'm interested early. that you say that because oh, I would have thought you were a pure capitation model here because of the NHS and the, and the primary care responsible for a population. So isn't that per capitation? So there should we, be incentives to keep people out of their practice so they can go and play golf. <laughs> we, GPs are paid on a capitation model, but um, hospitals are paid on a activity model. So uh, GPs aren't incentivized to keep people out of hospital. Uh, they do what they can, but um, we we still massively underinvest in primary care compared to what we would do if we were trying to stop people needing to go to hospital. Um, and um, but I think what you're alluding to is the next step in the prevention model, which is not just picking up diseases earlier, but picking them up before people are showing any symptoms at all. And that's what genomics is going to allow. And I think you know within a decade we'll all be sending in a blood sample every six months and people will be looking at 300 biomarkers for early signs of things like prostate cancer and bowel cancer, which now we find very difficult to... Or even to, more so I, pharmacogenomics where, you know, you can, this drug is going to work for you or even at nasty yeah. side effects. So I think, um, you know, that that's going to be a very exciting development. I think most people will be thrilled by that. It's a big opportunity. As politicians, though, we have to be honest that it's going to cost and uh, it's going to cost everyone more. And, you know, if you're in a taxpayer funded system, your taxes are going to go up to pay for it. And if you're in a insurance based system, your insurance premiums are going to go up. And if you're in someone like Australia, which has both, they're both going to go up. Um, but um, I think as conservatives, we should avoid falling into the trap of saying, this is about you know the state getting bigger um and because we all want to keep taxes down um but we made a political choice in the uk that we're going to fund our healthcare through our tax system and health is people's number one priority so mm -hmm. um the reality is if the country still wants to maintain a taxpayer funded system as they overwhelmingly mm -hmm. do in poll after poll then um you know, it's not about the state getting bigger and bigger. It's just a, about a choice that people are making to invest in these new, very exciting developments in healthcare. But if you're going to have a state-funded system, you need, on the one hand, it should make things like the prevention agenda much easier because it makes it much more logical to invest in public health um, and all sorts of prevention measures. But on the other hand, you know, we just got to be honest with people that comes with cost. 
Mm. Well, it's interesting because I spent 20 years trying to convince people that testing for one gene, hemochromatosis, which is the commonest genetic mutation in Caucasians, um, would actually save both the healthcare system from liver transplants because people have the gene and they don't get treatment, they can rust and need a liver transplant. But you'd also increase the ability for our blood banks to increase their supply. In fact, the cost effectiveness, um, it's a, you know, it costs a dollar to do one test like mm. that, is, is massive for the whole population. Mm. And I think that's, that's where health researchers have to be better at communicating, not just the risks, because uh, they are, of course, privacy and, and you know, personalised medicine and you know, feeling that you may have problems with your future, not wanting to know all those things, that Gattaca future is something people are frightened about. But I think we also have to get better at saying, well, these are the benefits and I would argue that, you know, for the private world's better at, at dealing with benefits, just like, you know, digitalisation of our phones. Mm, We've given mm. away all our information because it means that we can get to our favourite restaurant, mm. uh, both in direction and review. So we've got to get better at putting that information into the hands of the consumer so they can choose with their feet that they want to use this uh, information. Well, I've taken a lot of your time and um, I've loved talking to you. As I said, I could speak to you for hours, but um, I love the fact that you... Um, you, you quote Aristotle about, um, you know, the, 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 the risk is not um, aiming um, too high and missing, but aiming too low and hitting the mark. So, you know, the aspirational model, that's a, a definitely a conservative or in our, in our view, a liberal way of thinking about the world. So it's been an absolute delight speaking to you this morning. Thank you so much, Jeremy, and um, look forward to watching your uh, illustrious career in the area of health going forward. Like Christ, Katie, hope to see you back in Parliament soon. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Cheers, Ed. Bye-bye.